0: <clears throat> nobody 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 nobody
1: nobody reads short stories hi everyone i'm megan and welcome to another exciting episode of nobody read short stories this is the podcast where we read short stories for you so you don't have to And you can find all of our previous episodes on our website, nobodyreadsshortstories.com. So tonight we have a wonderful story by the very talented Christina Hoag. This story is called The Germaphobe. When Nigel is promoted to chief sanitation officer as a new pandemic hits, he becomes drunk with power and sparks the mockery of a new employee, at least until that new employee becomes ill himself. So here is the wonderful Jeff Verge reading The Germaphobe by Christina Hoag.
0: The Germaphobe by Christina Hoag. You're a regular clean machine, aren't you? Nigel stopped rubbing the desk with the disinfectant wipe and looked at the stranger standing in the doorway of his office. Must be new. Tall, well built healthy head of nondescript brown hair, brimming with confidence in his alleged cleverness. He took an instant dislike to the newcomer, but out of ingrained habit from the endless social skill lessons forced on him by his parents, he squeezed out a smile like the last bit of toothpaste. Did you need something? He said, continuing his hour-long morning disinfection ritual with the phone handpiece. The copy machine jammed. I was told that you were the go-to guy for all things machine-related. Nigel, right? Correct, Nigel said. Dwight Djokovic. People call me Jock. Started two weeks ago. He extended his hand. Nigel gave it the minimal shake required. One downward motion, then slid out his palm. He vaguely remembered a memo from HR about a new hire. He never paid much attention to emails. Nigel swiped his right hand with a disinfectant wipe, which he stuffed in his slacks' pocket. Jock gave a side-mouthed smile. Can't be too careful, huh? We certainly cannot. Shall we see about that jam? How long have you been working at Inside X, Nigel? Jock said as they walked down the corridor. Nigel, 23 years and almost four months. Jock whistled. You must know where all the bodies are buried. We haven't had any deaths here, Nigel said. Jock yelped a laugh. Great delivery, dude! Nigel knew he had said something wrong because he didn't quite understand the rejoinder, but he'd learned to ignore these things. They entered a vast room of cubicles filled with the purposeful buzz of employees talking into headsets and clacking on keyboards as they surveyed consumers about important aspects of daily life. Such as how many bubbles they preferred in their soap lather. As they skirted the perimeter to the coffee machine room, Candy twisted in her chair and twinkled her fingers at Jock. Hardly a surprise. She'd been between husbands for a full year now, an unusually long time. As Nigel passed, she dropped her smile like a hot frying pan and turned back to her computer. He felt a dart of irritation lodge in his back. There was no need to bear a grudge just because their drinks night three months ago had not gone entirely well. As Jock waited outside, Nigel entered the small room overstuffed with the bulky machine that printed, copied, scanned, emailed, faxed, collated, bound, stapled, and calculated the expense of each employee's printing habit and sent them invoices for excessive copies. It took him two seconds to locate the paper jam, He turned to advise Jock to be more careful and saw that Candy had joined him near the doorway. You weren't joking about this guy, Jock was saying. I shook his hand and he took it like it was a dead fish. Nigel bent back to the machine as a wave of heat flushed him from top to toe. He tried to focus on freeing the imprisoned paper, but their conversation drew him like a magnet. He found himself shuffling closer to the doorway. He wears the exact same outfit every day, Candy said. I hope he washes it, Jock said. I wouldn't get too close to find out, Candy said. Jock chuckled. Nigel looked down at his white Oxford shirt and dark blue slacks. Of course he washed them. He owned five sets of work clothes. Wearing the same thing every day was practical. He could stay in bed for a full seven extra minutes every morning because he didn't have to dither over an outfit, not to mention the shopping time he saved. You know what we should do? A mischievous tone crept into Jock's voice. What? Candy said. Jock's answer was lost in the sudden boom of, Nigel Birdsell. The girth of Tanya Crossman appeared in the copy room. She cradled a sheaf of bulging manila folders against her shelf-like bosom. Come into my office when you're finished. Make it snappy. I have a meeting to get to. Tanya was the assistant deputy executive senior vice president of what Nigel wasn't quite sure, but she kept a very orderly desk, which was more than you could say of most people. So he felt an affinity for her that bordered on like, which was also more than you could say of most people. Be right there, he said. She tottered off on her six-inch stilettos, which, due to the weighty protrusions of her bust and watermelon-sized midriff, made her pitch forward as she walked. Nigel always wondered how she didn't fall flat on her face. He'd once suggested that he could research a diet and exercise program for her, but to his surprise, she hadn't accepted his offer. He received a less-than-stellar performance review that year. Nigel extracted the offending, ink-smudged paper smearing his fingertips, He whipped out the wipe from his pocket and gave them a vigorous scrub. Whoa, buddy, you're going to take off your fingerprints, Jock said. Candy giggled. Or maybe that's the idea. Jock barreled on, encouraged by his audience like a class clown. You have a side hustle we don't know about? A little bank robbing, maybe? Candy upgraded her giggle into a chortle. Jock, you're too much. That's what all the gals say about me, Candy. Get used to it like a Fod. ah the matins of mirth and merriment and a chapel of xerox nigel thought he pressed resume job and the machine clunked to life with its rhythmic spew of pages he hurried on to tanya's office her door was open but she was absorbed by her computer screen he cleared his throat instead of knocking no need to touch surfaces when not strictly necessary He had just read in the Journal of Public Health and Hygiene that community transmission of COVID-19 had appeared. Shut the door and take a seat, Tanya said. He sat in the chair in front of her desk, spine like a steel rebar, and clasped his hands in his lap, wondering what this was about. He still had 87 days until his annual review. As I'm sure you're aware, the coronavirus is turning into a bad situation. It's actually, a. Novel coronavirus. The common cold is a coronavirus. Tanya pursed her lips and carried on. I just came from a meeting on the top floor. You've been promoted to chief sanitation officer in charge of all anti contagion measures company wide, effective immediately. I think you'll agree you're uniquely suited for the job. Nigel was stunned. He'd never been asked to do anything that didn't involve fixing machines. He slumped against the chair back, then remembered that upholstery held a frightening amount of bacteria and erected himself. But who will do my regular duties? You will. There's no raise, so don't bother asking. You need to get going on it ASAP. Feel free to purchase supplies, but don't overdo it. He bobbed his head, feeling the heavy mantle of responsibility settle on his shoulders. I'll send out the memo now. We're counting on you. Tanya's fingers were already tapping the keyboard. Nigel walked back to his office in a trance-like state. To think how far he'd come from his inauspicious start as a part-time market research associate in his last year of high school. He'd taken the job at the urging of his guidance counselor, Mr. Mendoza, who thought it would help him develop his people skills. But Nigel thought market research was a colossal waste of time. Instead of asking people inane questions about trivial habits, researchers should educate them. In his first survey, which was for the State Lottery Commission, he informed Powerball players that they had a 1 in 13,983,816 chance of hitting the jackpot, and the cash they spent on scratch-offs would be better invested in cleaning products. He was given a second chance after Mr. Mendoza intervened with the manager, who then assigned him to a poll about anti-wrinkle moisturizer. How likely did users believe that rid wrinkle worked? Extremely likely? Very likely. Somewhat likely, more or less likely, just a bit likely, just a bit less than just a bit likely, or no fucking way likely. The last option was the only correct one, he lectured consumers. You're better off saving your money and staying out of the sun. Do things like dust baseboards. The manager was about to fire Nigel when he found him repairing the phone switchboard. Upon further investigation, he discovered that Nigel could mend everything from the $30 Mr. Coffee to the $12,000 Xerox. He was hired full-time after graduation and given a cleaning cupboard as his office. And now, Nigel had climbed the corporate ladder to Chief Sanitation Officer. If only Mr. Mendoza could see his meteoric ascent. Nigel barely registered Candy and Jock, who were still engaged in their tête-à-tête as he walked by. Nigel! Jock called. He halted. Jock threw an arm around his shoulders and squeezed. Thanks for fixing the copier, buddy. You're welcome. Nigel warmed out of Jock's embrace. By the way, you're standing too close together. Social distancing recommendations state you must remain six feet apart. Jock craned his neck and mockingly searched the air. I hear a gnat buzzing. Candy spluttered with laughter. Tonya Crossman teetered up behind them. No, you hear our chief sanitation officer. If you were at your desks as you should have been, you'd have received the memo. Nigel, carry on. I have a meeting. Will do. Nigel drew himself up and strode back to his office. He rubbed his hands as he sat at his desk to issue his first edict. Since COVID-19 is a zoonotic virus, bring your pet to work day is heretofore canceled. He pressed send with a gleeful flourish. Thank God. He'd long wanted to eliminate the potential source of pestilence. He then went down to the basement and lugged up boxes of hand sanitizer and disinfectant spray, distributing them to each workstation. Thanks, said Wendy Nguyen, who sat next to Candy. I have a question about your memo. Does it apply to goldfish? They live in the water, so they must be clean, right? Send me a memo, Nigel said. As he walked away, he felt a pleasant sense of satisfaction at his official sounding response. He was born to lead. He sent out another memo saying all employees must wear face masks and sanitize workstations in the morning and afternoon. He then toured each floor to diagram one-way traffic flow patterns. Before he left for the day, he googled whether goldfish could harbor communicable disease and found that it was rare but possible. Goldfish are indeed a source of infection. You cannot bring your fish to work, he replied to Wendy's memo. He walked the six blocks home with a buoyant step, It had been the best day in his life, he reflected, really, a remarkable reversal from the years he spent in every kind of therapy his parents could find. Cognitive behavioral, dialectal behavioral, psychodynamic, interpersonal, gestalt, primal scream. It turned out he was perfectly fine as he was. It just took a pandemic to reveal his aptitude for management. He arrived at his one-bedroom cottage, painted a sterile white inside and out, washed his hands, and opened the fridge all the foods were labeled with post-it notes stating their expiration date and or date of purchase. He prepared his tasty triumvirate, protein, carbohydrate, and fiber, meal of chicken, potato, and cauliflower with prunes for dessert. As he wiped the plate and cutlery before use, dust could accumulate in drawers, he wondered if he should order a jacket with his new title embroidered on the breast. He would pay for it himself since Tanya had warned him not to overdo expenses. He chewed each mouthful the requisite 33 times, ordered the jacket online, then reclined in his armchair and clicked on his favorite movie, Space Wars 23. He'd watched all 31 Space Wars movies 68 times. He loved the depiction of Spartan life aboard spaceships. The ascetic whiteness, the lack of human clutter, not to mention the fact that spaceships never got dirty. The characters were just like him, always wearing the same outfits and imbued with a sense of serious mission. Nigel often rued that he'd been born too soon. He belonged in the future of space colonies. Not anymore, though. He nestled his bottom into the cushy seat. When he changed into his pajamas at precisely 9.43 p.m., he noticed a long streak of black marker on the back of his shirt, extending from the shoulder blade to the waist. He reviewed the day and couldn't think where he might have run into a marker. He tossed the shirt into the garbage. Not to worry, he had a stack of replacements for such casualties. The next day, Nigel arrived early to work, masked and gloved, and stationed himself at the employee entrance with sanitizer. A line formed as he checked that each person's mask was positioned correctly and ensured sanitizer was rubbed between fingers and under nails. Jock stepped up San's mask. Nigel plucked a paper one from a box beside him. A facial covering must be worn on the premises starting today. Nope. Nope. This is a free country. I have rights, Jock stated. The company has the duty to protect employees during a public health emergency. Move aside, buddy. I have work to do. I am the chief sanitation officer. Chief pain-in-the-ass officer, more like it. Tanya pushed her way to the head of the queue. What's going on? I have a meeting to get to. This employee is refusing to wear a facial covering, Nigel said. Everyone covers their face. Tanya said, Nigel dangled the mask. Glowering at him, Jock swiped it and looped it around his ears. Snitch, he muttered. Once the morning rush had passed, Nigel returned to his office and printed up 54 social distancing signs and grabbed a roll of red duct tape to make arrows on the floor in accordance with his traffic diagrams. Shoes, he thought suddenly. They were veritable petri dishes of germs. He found two plastic supermarket bags to encase his feet, fastening them with a rubber band around his ankle. After pinning up the notices all around the building, he shuffled to the break room, a popular congregating spot. That had to end. He removed all the chairs and stored them in the basement. His eyes landed on the coffee pot. Everyone handled that. He stowed it in a cupboard and went to the nearby office supply store and bought a single cup coffee maker. That afternoon, he wrote a lengthy memo detailing all the changes, then remembered Jock. Transgressors needed consequences. He had a brainwave and typed, Violators of sanitation rules will have their names placed on a blacklist, which will be posted on the employee refrigerator. He rocked back in his chair, feeling pleased. He looked at his bag-encased feet. Everyone should wear shoe coverings. He wrote an addendum to his memo. At 7.30, the following morning, Nigel took up sentry duty to ensure that everyone's feet bore covering. He'd brought bags and rubber bands just in case. Tanya was one of the first in. She appeared considerably shorter than usual. I'm very happy about this new rule, Nigel. It's given me permission to wear flats. My feet are overjoyed, she squealed with delight. Nigel puffed with pride. I thought since... Tanya cut him off. I've got a meeting. Everyone complied with the shoe-covering requirement except Jock and Candy. They arrived together without face or foot covering. Nigel had out masks and bags. No, Jock jutted his chin. No, Candy tossed her newly platinum curls. They sailed past him. Nice shirt, Nige, Jock said. Trying to butter him up with a compliment wasn't going to work, Nigel thought. He jotted their names and offenses on the blacklist, then stuck the paper to the fridge with a magnet. A little public pillorying would show them. After most employees had arrived, he decided to carry out a compliance check. Armed with his clipboard, he made the rounds from floor to floor, hovering over shoulders, peering into cubicles, spraying disinfectant on door handles and lift buttons. Looking into the car park from a top floor window, he realized he'd forgotten about the gazebo. People used to sit in it for lunch, but it had been taken over by smokers. A cluster of people huddled there amid cancerous fumes. He power-walked to his office, banged out a memo. Smoking area closed forthwith, then fetched nylon cord from the basement and proceeded outside. He was aghast to find Candy puffing on a cigarette, accompanied by Jock, who was not smoking. You're smoking, Nigel said. Thank God he dodged her kiss on that date. You're a real Einstein, Nigel," Jock said. Before Nigel had a chance to reply that his IQ was actually 22 points lower than Einstein's, Candy exhaled a stream of smoke that caught his throat. This area is (coughs) now closed, he said, coughing. The smokers stubbed out their cigarettes without protest. After they left, Nigel wound the rope around the gazebo to close off the entrances, and as he tied the knot, he spotted Jock halfway across the car park sucking cheek hollowing breaths from an inhaler. He had asthma and he was in the smoking area? Did he not know it was doubly dangerous for him to inhale lung irritants? The following morning, Nigel received an email notification that the printer's ink levels were low, so he decided to forgo the AM check. On his way to the Xerox, he glanced into the break room and halted. Jock and Candy's names on the blacklist had been obliterated. By Black Marker. Did they think he was an idiot? That he wouldn't know who was responsible? Nigel felt a bilious burst of anger. He took out a pen and rewrote their names. Forgetting about the printer, he scurried to his office to write a memo. Due to the defilement of company property, black markers are heretofore prohibited. He seized the Kleenex box from his desk, pulled out the tissues, then went straight to Jock's workstation where he was shocked to see Wendy Nguyen sitting. Why are you sitting here? He said. Jack wanted to swap desks. Does the Sharpie band include highlighters? Wendy asked. Send me a memo, he said. Deposit markers in here, please. So, Jock now sat next to Candy. Sorry, I don't have any, Wendy said. Nigel worked his way across the room collecting Sharpies. Finally, he came to Jock and Candy. Marker. He deepened his voice and rattled the box at Jock's back. Jock turned and gave him a sly smile. He took a sharpie off his desk and dropped it into the tissue box slot. Jock was finally respecting his authority, Nigel thought with relief. Tell me, Nige, have you ever kissed a girl? Jock asked. He heard a snort behind him and peeked. Candy was convulsing with laughter. She must have told him. His knees trembled and he latched onto the cubicle wall for support. Nigel pivoted, returned to his office, and typed a new memo. Workstation changes are suspended to ensure that virus droplets that may be embedded in a cubicle are not passed to another person. He sent it then went to the break room and added Jock's name and the new offense to the blacklist. By the time he returned to his office, an email from Wendy Nguyen had arrived. Do you think I'm already infected with Jock's germs? Please return to your previous workstation, he answered. Ten minutes later. Jock won't move back. Never mind. The following day at lunchtime, Nigel discovered Jock and Candy eating sandwiches at the table in the break room. They were sitting on their desk chairs. You know something, Nige? Jock said through a mouthful. I was wrong about you. You're a memo machine, not a cleaning machine. Candy dutifully chuckled. Nigel wrote a memo banning the wheeling of desk chairs anywhere in the building. That afternoon, he was finally refilling the ink in the printer when Tanya's voice bellowed from the doorway. Dr. Bertall, in my office. I'll be done. Now. I have a meeting in five minutes. He traipsed behind her to her office where she closed the door. I've had a disturbing complaint concerning your conduct. Candy says you're using your authority to retaliate against her because she rejected your advances. She said you insisted on going out with her three months ago, so she agreed to, quote, shut him up once and for all, end quote. When she rejected your physical advances, you pushed her off her chair. She said she felt ashamed and humiliated, so she didn't report the incident, but she feels you're targeting her now. We did go on a date, and I did push her off her chair, but I'll have to take this to HR to investigate, and meanwhile, you'll be relieved of your position effective immediately. But I'm taking over as CSO. I'll send the memo now. Tanya turned to her computer. When he opened the door, Candy and Jock scooted into their cubicles on their chairs. He slunk by them with sunken shoulders and plonked down at his desk. How could Candy have told such lies? The truth was that when Candy's maiden name had appeared for the fifth time on her cubicle, she started coming to his office to chit-chat when the most she'd ever talked about with him was paper jams. I bet you're financially savvy, Nigel. What type of retirement account do you have? You don't have to pay child support or alimony, right? Do you have any health conditions? Do you own your own home? No one had ever shown such interest in him before. He felt flattered. That Friday, she mentioned that she and a girlfriend had planned to have a drink that evening, but her friend had backed out. I have no one to go with, she said, pouting. That's too bad, Nigel said. An uncomfortable second passed in which Nigel wondered if he'd said the wrong thing, although he'd expressed sympathy, which seemed to be the appropriate response. Then she blurted, Why don't you go with me? Uh, he'd planned on composting. Awesome. I'll meet you at the Barking Cat at seven. He didn't like to disappoint, so he'd gone. After three Moscow mules downed in quick succession, Candy was leaning on an arm at a very acute angle on Nigel's side of the table. Then she'd sprung forward and stuck her tongue in his mouth. He recoiled. What? Candy had lost her capacity to utter final consonants. A mouth-to-mouth kiss transfers 80 million bacteria, Nigel said. There was a study in the Journal of Public Health and Hygiene. You're really weird. You know that? (laughs) It's kind of cute. Candy darted for his lips again. Disgusted, he pushed her away and her chair toppled back onto the floor, leaving her legs sticking up and hiking up her skirt. Mumbling a stream of sorries. Nigel rushed to her aid. He couldn't help but notice her rather strange underpants. They had no gusset, which seemed to render the wearing of undies somewhat useless, in his opinion. He had no time to mull in this paradox as a crowd with a forest of cell phones gathered. You fucking asshole! Candy seethed as she struggled to her feet. Gathering her purse, she reeled toward the ladies' room. After spending the weekend in considerable distress and based on an internet article he'd found, 10 surefire ways to smooth over a misunderstanding, he arrived at work early Monday and placed a bouquet of lilies on Candy's desk. She showed up at his office half an hour later and hurled the flowers in his face with the force of a Major League Baseball pitcher. For your information, videos from Friday night have been shared 1.2 million times. I am now a fucking laughingstock meme. Don't you tell anyone here about it. He hadn't, but now it seemed Candy had, and she'd mixed lies in with the truth. He stayed in his office for the rest of the day, watching the clock. As soon as it ticked onto five, he bolted. When he arrived home, a box containing his embroidered jacket was waiting on the doormat. He tossed it down the basement steps. The next day, Tanya was wearing her skyscraper heels, the chairs and Mr. Coffee had been reinstalled in the break room, The blacklist was a crumpled fist of paper in the trash, and the gazebo was engulfed in a cloud of smoke. The only remnants of his short reign were hand sanitizer and signs. He should never have accepted the promotion. He was only good for fixing machines. The following week, he entered the break room to refill his water bottle and found Tanya tapping out ibuprofen from a bottle into her palm. Half the office has called in sick, she said. covid And I have a bad headache. That's a COVID symptom. You should go home. Good idea. I'll leave after my meeting. He wanted to tell her that his other good ideas would have prevented this outbreak, but what was the point? Trudging back to his office, he heard a scream. He wheeled and saw Candy kneeling over Jock on the floor. Oh my God! Oh my God! She said, hands over her mouth. Nigel rushed over. Jock was wheezing heavily, his eyes wild with fright. He's having an asthma attack, Candy said. He forgot his inhaler. Nigel clasped his hands and pumped Jock's chest. It didn't seem to be working. Jock struggled to breathe, making awful gurgling sounds. He needed mouth to mouth and Nigel had read how to do it. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. He just couldn't. The thought of it was revolting. Jock grabbed Nigel's shirt in a grip of desperation. He was asphyxiating. He was going to die. Nigel couldn't watch someone die. Fighting revulsion rising from his stomach, he quickly pinched off Jock's nose with one hand, took a deep breath, and squeezing his eyes shut, sealed his mouth around Jock's and blew as hard as he could. He imagined himself as the ocean tide, going out, coming in, as he rose for air, blew again. He wasn't touching someone's lips. He was far away. He kept it up until he felt a tug on his shoulder. We'll take over now, the woman's voice sounded like it was in a tunnel. He looked up bewildered. A paramedic was on the other side of Jock, planting a plastic mask on his face. Nigel hauled himself up using the arm of a chair as the other paramedic moved into his place and took Jock's vital signs. Feeling dizzy, Nigel fled to the bathroom where he washed his mouth with soap and rinsed with water several times. He couldn't believe what he'd done. It was against everything he'd based his life around. He looked in the mirror and saw an unknown person inhabiting his body. A huge gulping sob rose out of him. Who was he now? What did this mean? He couldn't go to work the next day. He slummed around the house in his bathrobe. He tried to watch Space Wars, but it suddenly seemed silly. He picked up the Journal of Public Health and Hygiene, but found it pompous. He sat on a bench in his back garden and stared at rabbits, nibbling the lettuce. The doorbell jolted him. He put on his mask and opened the door. Jock. Masked and standing back six feet. I know I'm the last person you want to see, but I had to thank you for saving my life. The doctors told me that if you hadn't acted, I'd be dead. And I was a total asshole to you. Wendy told me the truth about what happened with you and Candy this morning. It was quite a bit different than what Candy told me. She said you were obsessed with her, so I wanted to be her hero to impress her. She used me to get back at you, and I was dumb enough to fall for it. You're really a good person, Nigel. Weird, but good. Nigel was dumbstruck. And if you don't already hate me enough, I tested positive for COVID in the hospital. I figured you should know. Well, that's all I came to say. Oh, I owe you this too. He held out a bag. Maybe we can get a beer sometime. He turned and walked down the path. Nigel opened the bag. It contained... Nigel opened the bag. It contained a white Oxford shirt. Wait, Jock, you want to come in? I don't have beer, but I have milk. What about quarantine? Nigel shrugged. If you have COVID, I have it. Hell yes, then, Jock said. They entered the house. Nigel poured two glasses of milk and they sat on the bench in the backyard. I admit, I got carried away being CSO, Nigel said. I was never in charge of anything before. You were doing your job. Where'd you learn mouth-to-mouth? Journal of Public Health and Hygiene. Jock studied him. You'd never done it before? Nigel shook his head. That's fucking amazing, dude. Nigel felt a chip of warmth in his belly. They sipped the milk. By the way, I watched that video of Candy, Jock said. It was hilarious. (laughs) She was looking to reel you in, dude. She was looking to reel you in, too, dude. Jock draped his arms around Nigel's shoulders and held up his milk for a toast. To surviving candy and COVID. Nigel clinked his glass. Hell yes. You need some work, but you're getting there, dude. Nigel smiled.
1: All right, that was so great, Jeff. Thank you so much. Um, So everyone, this is Jeff Verge. And Jeff is an actor, screenwriter, and peanut butter addict based in Los Angeles. He's recently come off of a strong supporting role for the upcoming indie feature film Glasses. You can hear more of his voice over work as your personal fitness trainer on the Down Dog HIIT and Down Dog Running apps, which are available in the App Store. Or you can follow his journey on Instagram at jeff underscore Verge. And Jeff is also uh, reading another episode of Nobody Reads this season. It's um, My Mother's Eyes by Jeremy Ray, which was also very, very well done. So thank you so much, Jeff, for your time and your wonderful reading.
0: Of course. Yeah, no, thank you.
1: Oh, what a wonderful reading by Jeff. That was so exciting. Um, Speaking of things that are exciting, I am excited to bring on our special guest for this episode. She is a writer that we featured uh, on a previous season of Nobody Read Short Stories. So let me give you an introduction to the wonderful Michelle Ross. So Michelle Ross is the author of three story collections, There's So Much They Haven't Told You, which is the winner of the 2016 Moon City Short Fiction Award, Shapeshifting, the winner of the 2020 Stillhouse Press Short Fiction Award, and They Kept Running, which was the winner of the 2021 Catherine Ann Porter Prize in Short Fiction. Her work is included in Best Small Fictions, Best Microfiction, The Wigleaf Top 50, and will also be included in the forthcoming Norton Anthology, Flash Fiction America. And Michelle is the fiction editor of the Atticus Review. So without further ado, here is Michelle Ross to join us. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Megan. (laughs) Welcome back to the show. Thank you
2: for having me again.
1: Yeah, Good absolutely. You. <laughs> yeah, it's so exciting to have you here in this other capacity. So thank you for lending us your your expertise and your short story brain for the evening. <laughs> so before we get to, to start talking about um, Christina's lovely story, I'm just going to set cranky for three minutes so that we don't babble on for too long because you know how that goes.
2: <laughs> Easy to do.
1: Easy to do, especially when we're... Talking about things that we love, like short stories. (laughs) So tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, your, your thoughts on Christina's story and like, what, what was it about this story that grabbed you?
2: Well, I'm always a big fan of office stories, work stories, you know, um, And, and having worked in an office myself for many, many years, and thank goodness, not anymore, now that I finally get to work from home, thanks to the pandemic. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I, I think this story does a great job of capturing that ridiculousness of office culture, you know, and it's like, it's funny, when you read a story like this, it's like, oh, that's so crazy. And yet, it's like, no, it's totally true. Like this is how offices are. This is how corporate. um Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, that was.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I had the. That was one of the things that drew me. Like, I, I have also worked in my fair share of offices over the last, you know, two decades, and I had the exact same reaction. Where at first you're reading it, and you can kind of see how somebody might go, "Oh, this is satire," or "This is some sort of like." exaggeration of what it's really like. But if you've worked in an office for I think more than six months, you see this broad <laughs> range of behaviors that make you realize like, oh, this is people are weird, man. And then you put them in an office together and they just get weirder. Right. <laughs> right. And Christina um, does such a great job of capturing that. And I, I think that is that is one of the things about this story that that really shines.
3: hmm hmm
2: Totally. Um, I just love the detail of them, you know, tallying up how many pages you're photocopying. If you go, <laughs> oh,
1: what? Oh my gosh. How can that be three minutes? That impossible. was so <laughs> fast. Oh, my gosh. So please finish your thought, though. You love the image of them I'm tallying
2: up how many photocopies, you know, each one does. And if it's excessive, you're going to get invoiced for that. Excessive amount, which <laughs> totally seems like something my um, employer would have done.
1: <laughs> yeah, it made me think of I did work for this law office uh, one time, and if, when you worked for a law office that bills in the way that that the law office that I worked for did, like you would, you would bill every photocopy to they to the client. Oh, for, right. And then you had your own personal number, and it was always this implication of like. Don't let your number get too high. Same
2: know? here. We and we had personal numbers too when I worked in the office, but but it was never a, like a limit officially. But yes, there's a feeling of like, well, <laughs> what's the limit?
1: Right. It's almost like there's more pressure if there's not a limit. Like if you know you can only have fifteen a month, you can only have fifteen a month. But if they're like, oh, just don't use too much, I was always like, well, what what is your definition of too much? I don't know what the what the parameters are right um anyway so i've done it again I'm, I'm babbling on after um cranky goes off so uh before we bring on christina let me just share with you guys a little bit about the wonderful christina hoag so christina is a former journalist who has had her laptop searched by colombian guerrillas Her phone tapped in Venezuela, was suspected of drug trafficking in Guyana. hid under a car to evade Guatemalan soldiers, and posed as a nun to report from inside a Caracas jail. She has interviewed gang members, bank robbers, thieves, and thugs in prisons, shanty towns and slums, not to forget billionaires and presidents, some of whom fall into the previous categories. Now she writes about such characters in her fiction. Uh, Christina has an extensive writing background. We don't have time to go through the entire thing, but a few of her novels include Law of the Jungle, Skin of Tattoos, The Blood Room, Girls on the Brink. She's a former staff writer for the Miami Herald and the Associated Press. She was born in New Zealand, and Christina grew up as an expat in seven countries, arriving in the United States as a teenager. She now lives in Los Angeles, where she has taught creative writing at maximum security prisons and to at-risk teen girls. She is a regular speaker at women's conferences, writing conferences, and organizations, book clubs, stores, and libraries. So not only has Christina had this extensive, uh, fabulous life, but she also does her best (laughs) to give back, which I think is Fantastic. So, with, so let's bring Christina on. Christina, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, and thanks for having me. It's very exciting.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. We're so happy to we're so happy to have you.
3: Oh, thanks. Yeah. I was very impressed with Michelle's background too in short stories.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Michelle's a Michelle's a rock star. You know, I we know. want. Oh, we I don't like, uh... well, you know what you going to say about my story. <laughs> Well, I do have to tell you that when I sent uh, Michelle your story and asked her if she wanted to, you know, be on the show about it, she was like, she answered with a resounding yes, that she would love to participate with your story. So I did get was... to see it first. Yes, oh, okay. yes. <laughs> sure. She had a definite stamp of approval. So <laughs> that should assuage your fears a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So to get us started, Christina, will you just tell us a little bit about um, what was the impetus for this story and kind of what uh, was the spark that made you want to write this specific story?
3: Well, it was the the start of the the pandemic, and I just thought, wow, somebody who's like a you know a a, germaphobe, a cleanliness nut, would be like this would be like heaven for them, you know? It'd be like the whole world's gone bonkers over cleaning and sanitizing and just, you know, mask wearing, you know, everything. And I just thought, wow, they just might, must be in seventh habit, you know, somebody with OCD uh, cleanliness type stuff. And it just grew out of that. I, I, I don't really know how I, you know, as you know, with writing, you just kind of sit down with an idea and then it just starts sort of blossoming. And I don't know how I struck on the, the office. Well, it sort of, I guess, came out of the office thing. Um, you know, it just seemed a natural environment to... Uh, set the story in because there was so much stuff about, you know, offices closing and everything um, and then putting a germaphobe in that environment. And um, as you were just saying, I mean, my the last office I worked in, which was the Associated Press, had just recently, you know, instituted the code for the photo <laughs> And, you know, I mean, it was just so like, you know, I mean, God, you know, it, I mean, you have one little perk of like making a few photocopies for personal <laughs> reasons, you know. I mean, and they're going to take that away, but any, anyway, you know. So I had to put in something about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's um, since you're a you know an, an office cohort and you have a, you know background working in an office? Like, do you do you find writing about office environments cathartic? Like, do you feel like it's sort of a way of exercising some of these? <laughs> I think
3: it really was, you know, that's, the, that's the only office story I've written, but it really was kind of, I, I mean, I just had a great time writing that and the characters and the person, you know, is always going to the meeting, you know, the manager's always got a meeting and, um, and then, you know, the office romances that develop the office, you know, the gossip that develops the, the little rivalries, um, and of course the photocopy machine that always gets stuck, you know, um, always uh, problems with the photocopier. Um, So I, and it was just kind of, yeah, it was a cathartic exercise, I think, just to to write all these different things in.
2: You know, Christina, you just referenced how the boss, was it her name, Tanya, Tanya, right? Tanya, yeah. That she's always saying she's going to a meeting. And and this gets at one of the things I really loved about the story is I thought your dialogue was so spot on. I feel like the humor works so well because of the sort of the subtlety. Like, you, you know, there's no narrative voice explaining what's going on here, but you allow the reader to observe the craziness of the dialogue. And that was one great example. It's just, you know, that's what Tanya says every single time, a meeting, a meeting, a meeting, even after she's got, you know, she thinks she might have COVID, she's got a headache and she's like, yeah, you're right. I should go home after this meeting, (laughs) (laughs) despite that I might spread this disease. Um, Oh, oh, and another, I just, on the dialogue, one of my favorite moments too, is the very end of the story. um, When Jock says to Nigel, um, she was looking to reel you in too, dude. Or no, no, sorry, not the two. She was looking to reel you in, dude. And then you go to to Nigel, who just basically repeats the same thing. But then there's that awkward pause because you've broken up the sentence. She was looking to reel you in, too,
3: dude.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I love that subtlety of that humor.
3: Um, Oh, thanks. Yeah, I was trying. Yeah, exactly. Trying to understate it without sort of, you know, on the head. I mean, I, I guess it was a little bit of a, a takeoff or or inspiration by the the office, the t, you know the TV show kind of a thing, um, but
1: uh, yeah. So it, yeah, and I, I I agree with Michelle. Like, I think your your dialogue is almost like sometimes I kind of felt like your the dialogue itself was like its own sort of entity uh, that was moving around in the story and added so much. But without, um, but with, but let us experience the dialogue. These crazy characters with the dialogue, as opposed to having uh, too much description or having too much explanation. Like, I definitely agree with that. And and again, coming from uh, from the office background, you can always fill in um, anything that <laughs> you always fill it in with your own with your own story. You know, right? You're your own like, experience. Oh, I know that person. Yeah. 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 Right. right. Ab- absolutely. Um, you know we're we're um
2: talking about Nigel and his germophobia and and yeah, and reading this story, I was kind of thinking like, I, I your answer makes sense. I was like, oh, this story must be inspired by the idea of like how COVID has made this perfect world for a person like this, um, which is so interesting. I mean, I love how. He goes from, he's thinking about his, his sci-fi space movies and how he, you know, always felt like he wasn't at home on Earth because it's not clean, like these spaceships, like that's where he should be in the future. But then COVID comes along, <laughs> you know, and becomes this, this whole new thing. Um, and one thing I found really interesting about him is like, I don't doubt at all that he's a germaphobe, I completely believe all of that, and yet at the same time, very obviously, he, you know, totally exploits it. You know, he uses it to get. He gets power. He gets pleasure from from rankling all of his coworkers. And um, I'm just curious to hear you talk a little bit about that that character trait of his.
3: Well, he he's someone who's been sort of downtrodden. You know, he's on he's sort of Aspergery, if you want to say, or on the spectrum. So he's been sort of put down his whole life, and then finally he comes. This is his big chance. He comes into his own. Finally, he's going to be appreciated for his big, you know, his value. You know, that he he sees his value as you know offering all these great advice. And, you know, and he's very forthright and he tells people like it is. And nobody seems to like that about him. And he just can't figure it out until and then now this now's this moment. He's the chief sanitation officer. So, of course, you know, humans being humans, he gets carried away and now he can really has he has his power and he can exercise that power over people. And and he can finally, you know, be be number one, you know, be
2: the mm-hmm.
3: guy. That was the that was the the thinking. You know, we'd been this sort of this the oddball his whole life, and now he he suddenly wasn't the oddball. You know,
2: you know, and I and I don't want to get too political here, but <laughs> but I couldn't help but think about the fact that you know during the early months, especially of the pandemic, like how these very real feelings of people, you know, like. People wanting to wear masks and being afraid of getting sick, and people feeling I can't wear a mask because that takes away my freedom. Like that, there's a legitimate feelings on both sides. And yet at the same time, it slowly eked towards like this political battle, you know, that it becomes like not about what it was in the beginning, you know. And, and so I thought a lot about that um, in reading Nigel. It's like he really legitimately is a germaphobe.
3: But yeah, just, it, you know, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. He sees it as another thing, but he he legitimately feels he's doing the right thing, and he's protecting everyone, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's how he's felt his whole life, you know. With the, uh, you know, he had these various jobs that he kept getting fired from. So finally, they stuck him in a closet, uh, and uh, he's a, uh, you know, told him to fix the copy machine. <laughs>
1: right. And right. I and I love I love Michelle's point about what happens when we take our, our regular, like legitimate human feelings, like I, I am a, I am a germaphobe or I, I want to wear a mask. And, and you put that in the pressure cooker of some unusual circumstances, like a pandemic or a pandemic in an office building <laughs> or other, other sort of like enclosed spaces. you, it it almost like takes something that is legitimate and and escalates it to this point where it takes over you and it takes over your the people around you and and it's like you become this person sometimes that maybe you wouldn't have become in other circumstances i mean i guess that's the the whole the whole adage of uh you know pressure forges you and changes you into something that you might not be and i and i love the fact that it's a it's an office setting and that it's uh the pandemic that has sort of risen Nigel to this alternative place or or, or allowed him the space to sort of go into this plane um that maybe he wouldn't have gone into if he hadn't uh, found himself in these exact circumstances. right.
3: I mean it's like you know, you know any drama, you have to have that conflict. so now he's he's in this new a new age new era where he's taken seriously so what does that mean for him how's he going to change from that and and we see him you know get worse as power, and then he sort of realizes he's <laughs> by the end. Yeah, I had to give it a sort of a happy ending or a bittersweet ending at the end, but um, uh, you know, it's again, yeah, you, you never know what you're going to do until you're you know in these extraordinary circumstances of um, you know, whatever life throws at you, and then mm-hmm. you know, we don't know how we're going to react.
1: Um, yeah,
3: absolutely, weird t- you know, something out of the ordinary happens. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the character of Jock and, and kind of how you um, wanted to juxtapose those two t- together? I mean, do you see them as being foils for each other or like building the conflict off of each other or kind of how did you see their relationship?
3: Yeah. You know, Jock's the the guy, he's everything Nigel wants to be, you know, and isn't, you know, he gets the girls, he laughs, he makes these jokes and, you know, he's handsome and he, you know, he's got this cool name, Jock. And, uh, and so, you know, right away, you know, he, you know, Nigel's like looking at him and getting a little envious or what have you. And of course he ends up with candy. (laughs) The the office, uh, you know, she's always looking for the the husband, the husband hunter. Um, And um, and that sort of, you know, goes awry. So I had to make Jock sort of comes in as this really, you know, cool over swagger, you know, a lot of swagger. And then, of course, the pandemic makes him, he gets, you know, uh, his downfall meets his, you know, the hubris uh, comes in. So he he and sort of Nigel meet each other in the middle by the end, um, become friends.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Do you think that shock um, like is a genuine guy in some ways? like it's like in the beginning, do you think he's he's just do you think he's making fun of Nigel or do you think he's like genuinely trying to be friendly and then it, you know goes from there?
3: Um, a, well, a bit of both. I mean, he, he wants to come in, you know, as a new employee. And sometimes, I've, and again, I've seen this, you know, the, the, the guys come in with the swagger and overly friendly to people. They want to make a good impression. They, you know, try and impress. So he's trying to impress Nigel, but very quickly realizes that, you know, there's no one really... It's not really even worth impressing. And of course, Candy's, Mm. then he, you know, Candy's whispering in his ear about him. So then he figures, oh, he can win over Candy by, you know, making fun of Nigel and that kind of thing, mocking him. Um, So, but again, it just plays on that, you know, you're on, you know, the 90 days probation when you get into the new job. And so you've (laughs) got to be on your best behavior and, you know, do everything that the boss says and work overtime and, you know, do all this stuff. Um, and everybody else is just like, you know, the newbie. And um, yeah, so that, that was sort of the, the play on that as
2: well. I mean, it is an interesting contrast between those two characters. I mean, I think what we're we're getting at is like they're both so, they're both complicated. Like neither one is super duper likable, (laughs) but, but yet not completely unlikable either. You know, I mean, I don't blame Jock for not liking Nigel when he put his name on black permanent marker on the refrigerator, you know, like I wouldn't like that guy either. So (laughs) that makes sense. But then, yeah, it's like candy. I think she's, um, she's a little bit hard to appreciate, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's another great dialogue moment that you just referenced where she's just hitting Nigel with all these questions about his financial (laughs) well-being, you know.
3: Right. If he has life insurance (laughs) and all this stuff. Of course, Nigel's (laughs) completely oblivious. He's like, wow, somebody's taking interest in me, you know, and uh, she really wants to get to know me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And of course she wants to find out, you know, if there's uh, any possibility of, uh, you know, money
2: yeah i mean you mentioned oh so you wrote this dur- like during like the beginning of the pandemic yeah or, like later the beginning wow. of the
3: pandemic yeah yeah ah.
2: did it did it seem um were there any particular challenges to writing about the pandemic during the pandemic or did you just feel totally unencumbered
3: (laughs) yeah i mean i just again it just sort of took off and um i didn't think much about the pandemic as it was going i mean i set this sort of right as when when the pandemic is coming in before the office you know everybody evacuates the offices and and whatnot so i still had the setting of the office and and the fear getting you know taking hold of the the uh the spreading virus so that was also central. I wanted to set it just before because otherwise there wasn't much, you know, on a Zoom. <laughs> True. No, I no thought, oops, uh,
1: no, yeah, no. I, I thought you captured the, the office culture of because I was working in an office at the time when it was like, You know how things escalate sort of was like okay here's some hand hand sanitizer and then here's another precaution you need to take and then here take another precaution and and after a while I just remember thinking like should we even be here anymore like Mm -hmm. when when. Is are we gonna, um, you know, make the make the leap, and and always the powers that be, or just like let's do another precaution and add another precaution and uh, <laughs> You're you know. coming
3: to work in a hazmat suit, you know, right, right, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And then this whole, uh, this whole uh, psychology of people like acting like it's not a really a big deal. And, you know, versus people who are taking, you know, all these precautions. And it was just a really, really strange time to be working in a in an office and every day kind of see that progression and and how it changed and people changed and their, their uh, behaviors changed. Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) Right. You know, people came out and got aggressive, you know, over wearing masks and all this sort of thing. I mean, it was it was a very strange time. And, you know, it really was. It spurred so many weird things, you know, like, again, (laughs) the mask wearing politics and all these other things. I mean, it really was an odd couple of years. Totally.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, Michelle, do you have any other questions for Christina or any thoughts you'd like to to share?
2: Um, I was going to ask one other question. So, you know, Megan mentioned that you, I think, were, you're not a journalist anymore, but you've been a journalist for for many years. And I'm just curious about, you know, writing in these different forms, different genres. Like, you know, did were you writing fiction while you were writing journalism? And, and how was... How was that you know and, and are you now just focusing on fiction and um just yeah
3: yeah basically I, I just focus on fiction i do i do have to eat so you know fiction does <laughs> not provide much of a living what? Uh, <laughs> a few you know if i want to eat subsist on more than a bread crumb um so i do like corporate writing and some other different mm-hmm. editing and and things like that but one of the hard things was to switch out of journalistic mode into fiction mode as a journalist you know you you tell stories sort of down the the middle um you know present both sides of the story there's no emotion you know there's very few you know occasionally on a feature story you might get a sentence or two of description in but usually there's not much of that um so I was at the beginning when I started really seriously writing fiction um I was writing at night and in the early in the morning and whatnot around my job but um And I think I really had to leave uh, journalism to be able to kind of break that, you know, to get away from that journalistic Mm -hmm. impulse, you know. because it's a different, it's just different, mm-hmm. there's some skills that are the same, you know, you learn to recognize what's a good story, you, you get very, you get used to kind of, you know, being edited and criticism, you know, criticism or just being edited. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're very disciplined, you know, I, I I have no problem just sitting down and writing, okay, I'm going to write today and I sit down and I write. Um but um it's getting the emotions into the story that's what i had you know at the beginning was a big obstacle mm. so i had to you know work on that is getting that emotional heft into the writing
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh i can totally see that i started off um writing journalism and thought i wanted to be a, like a beat news reporter because i was like i just want the facts and i want to write out the facts and And then as I progressed, I I thought, oh, well, no, I, you know, I like, I like story and I like emotions. And, and I had a similar experience when I, when I was shifting away from doing uh, journalism. And I still, I still have to sort of like take a beat when I'm writing a story. And I feel like my first draft is very like fact-based. And then I go back and I have to sort of Mm-hmm. be intentional about mining those emotions because it's just not where my brain goes mm-hmm. in- immediately. You know, because some sometimes they, they pop out and there's little nuggets and then I can mine those, but I, I, until you until you said that, I didn't really think like, oh, that's probably because of the way I was originally trained as a writer.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, exactly, I had <laughs> exactly the same uh, experience, too. And I, I will say writing fiction is a lot harder than journalism or nonfiction. You know, also <laughs> written nonfiction, sort of long, long form and what have you. But fiction is tough. It is a real challenge, mm-hmm. you know.
2: Mm-hmm. I was just going to say on the on the other hand too though, the advantage of of doing nonfiction or or another job, whatever it is that you're doing, then you get all this material you know I mean it sounds like you've
3: gotten tons of material from your nonfiction work yeah, <laughs> exactly we've got lots yeah. of different different mm-hmm. kinds of characters and you know plots and things, so that's true yeah mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, oh my gosh, you uh, never run out of ideas or characters. It sounds like <laughs> your extensive background, <laughs> which is wonderful. <laughs> well, uh, Christina, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with us and letting us feature it on the show. And thank you, Michelle, for coming on tonight to have this lovely conversation with Christina. Christina, is there anything else you would like to add? before we go no just
3: thanks so much for for doing this i really appreciate it you know you, you write these stories you get them published maybe in the you know a literary journal and it has like a readership of five people and <laughs> i mean you never hear anything so it's just you know to have it on a larger platform is just it's just great
1: oh great well we were we were happy to to showcase it So uh, thank you so much, Christina, I really appreciate it, and Michelle, thank you again. Yeah, thanks, Um, Michelle,
3: for Thank you.
1: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, so that concludes another fantastic episode of Nobody Read Short Stories. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You can find all of our previous episodes at nobodyreadshortstories.com, watch all of our videos on YouTube, please like and subscribe. As well as download, you can download our audio podcast from Stitcher, Google, Amazon, um, Apple Podcasts. Basically anywhere you listen to your audio podcast, you can find us. So thank you so much, and we will see you guys soon.
3: No one reads our stories anymore I really don't know what they're written for short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short story, funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories anymore. Yes, no one reads short stories.